I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiberfueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant U, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing, we're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024. And grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. Here is a fun email that I received last week. Rip, your Plant Strong pizzas have helped my family of five get excited about healthy eating. Every Friday night, we bake all five pizza crusts from your kit, and each member of the family gets to then build their own. We take turns baking them and then serve up one monster pizza buffet. Sometimes we compete on who makes the best pizza while watching a movie or playing board games. The leftovers are our lunches the next day and our kids ages 9, 11, and 12 all enjoy the freedom and creativity of the fun Friday meal. Thank you for making a product that we can feel great about serving our kids and shipping them everywhere because our local stores have very few plant-based options. And for the cost of one specialty pizza from a local pizza place, we get to make five healthy versions. We can't thank you enough. Marcy from Lawrence, Kansas. Well, Marcy, I love that Plant Strong Pizza Kits are the centerpiece of your family's Friday nights. And I want you to know there's a lot of other families that roll the same way, including the Esselstons. If you haven't already, be sure to check out our Ultimate Pizza Guide, where we have collected some of our favorite ingredient toppings to try at home. It is nutso how many we have. And it sounds like your family could publish a recipe guide for us as well. For anybody that's interested, please send me a photo the next time your family sets up the Ultimate Plant Strong Pizza Buffet. I want to see it. Uh, Email me at hello at plantstrong.com. And for anyone who wants the guide, simply visit plantstrongfoods.com. How do we open up this conversation about changing the food system? Because as you know, and you talk to guests all the time about this, food is one of the few things that affects all of us. Absolutely, everybody is affected by food. We all eat. There's almost 8 billion people on this planet and we all eat. And we need to make sure as we make the decisions for what the future of this planet is going to eat, that it's inclusive of everyone or we're gonna fail. We absolutely will fail. I'm Rip Esselstyn and welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast. The mission at Plant Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plant Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. A few months back, a longtime Plant Strong buddy of mine, Adam Sud, who has been on the podcast several times, 
he emailed me and he said, Rip, I want you to meet this woman. She is a absolute force of nature. She is changing the landscape of the plant-based food industry. And I think she'd be a great guest on your show as well. So how in the world am I going to refuse such a testimonial from such a very good friend? And I want you to know after meeting with Jennifer and speaking with her, he is absolutely 100% right. And you all know that my mother, Anne, and my sister, Jane, just released their new book, Be a Plant-Based Woman Warrior. Well, Jennifer Stoikovich is one of those warriors. A little bit about her. In 2020, she founded Vegan Women's Summit, VWS. It is a global media events platform focused on empowering women to build a kinder, more sustainable world. She recently released her book, The Future of Food is Female, which highlights female leaders, innovators, and change makers in the plant-based food space. And she does a tremendous job with it. In my many years of experience, it is really rare to find someone as passionate and driven as Jennifer is to elevate, to showcase, and to promote women working in food tech. As she writes, food system reform is the greatest challenge facing humanity today, and women are leading the charge in changing how we approach food. Today, Jennifer shares her unconventional route from Canada to Silicon Valley, and we highlight several of the change makers in her book, along with the many projects that she's leading right now, including the Vegan Women's Summit, which is her flagship event, bringing women together to build a kinder, healthier, and more sustainable world. How kick butt is that? You know that I love to share stories of hope and positive change, and Jennifer's work is no exception. So let's jump in with Jennifer Stoikovich. Hey, Jenny. Hey, how are you? I am well. It's, it's really nice to to meet you, I feel very fortunate that I was introduced to you by our mutual friend, Adam Sud, uh, the plant-based addict. Adam is one of the most dynamic connectors in this space. I love how many people I have met through Adam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's spectacular. And in fact, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit PO'd at Adam right now because you came through Austin in late April of this year for your book tour, right? I did, the, yes. The future of food is female. And I, for whatever reason, was clueless. I didn't even get an invite or anything. I would have loved to have shown up. Oh, uh, I'm totally going to I'm gonna blame Adam for that because he helped me with the uh, Austin crew. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry we didn't get you. Honestly, we had so many people come out in Austin. I think we'll do another event there anyway. Yeah. Well, and I figured that Adam was a part of that. And that's why I'm a little bit PO'd at him right now. <laughs> All right. We're calling you out, Adam. We started with the love. Now you're in trouble. Yes. We'll get you back up there again. Exactly. Exactly. Man, you know, so Jenny, you are a, man, you are a fierce female warrior, right? I mean, and what I want to know, first question out of the gates for you is, you know, you talk about in your book, how a lot of girls, women, they somehow, they get defeated, they shrink, they, they, they don't blossom into the amazing, strong, powerful women that they should be. So how is it that you somehow avoided, avoided that shrink? Oh, that is a quite a question to start with. Okay. I think that I was fortunate for a few reasons. Um, I had a very atypical childhood. I was raised by a stay-at-home dad. Wow. So while all of my friends either had, you know, both parents at work or, or had stay at home moms, I was the only one that had a dad. And I think that that's absolutely served me well, uh, for, for my career in particular, because, um, I grew up in a house of all women. So just my dad and, um, all girls, mom, two daughters, and we were just kind of all raised is like, just, 
I guess, one gender. Like, there was no gender difference in my house. There was no difference between how sons were treated and how daughters were treated. And I think that from the very get-go, that has influenced the way that I've acted um, from my youngest age uh, years. And as I've gotten a little bit older, I've been really fortunate to continue to have um, really good role models that are both, you know, men and women, particularly some super, super powerful women mentors early in my career as well. Wow. And how many sisters do you have? So there's, so there's just myself and my older sister. So there's two of us, but she is a decade older than me. So she herself kind of was really like a third parent when I was growing up. And I think that just created this really interesting dynamic because I had multiple women to look up to, including my mom, who was the one that she was our breadwinner. My mom was a breadwinner and that was like not a thing. Um, you know, when you're younger, that is, that was a very atypical childhood experience. Yeah. Well, you also grew up in Canada, right? I did. Yes. And, uh, I don't know if that's a little bit more common in Canada, but I've always found Canadians to be just, kind. Of, they're just cool, wonderful, kind human beings. And, and they seem to have their values a little bit, you know, in order. Americans were all over the map. <laughs> I was really lucky. You know, I grew up in a pretty small town outside of Toronto, uh, which I talk about in the book. It, it was really interesting because I actually grew up around farms, like all over. Uh, that was a totally common, you know, thing to see. Like most of our town, uh, we were like a one stoplight type town. There's still not even a McDonald's where I grew up. Like that's how small it was at the time. And I never really thought about food, interestingly enough, despite the fact that Canada is such like an agricultural powerhouse. I never even considered it until I was much later in life. Right. And I noticed in the book, you you actually say that you didn't think about it until there was a senseless act of violence that then really changed the way you looked at a lot of things in your life. Can you share with me what that was or how that happened? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in my early 20s, uh, my husband and I were newlyweds. So we got married very, very young. I moved to the US when I was 21 with four suitcases and my dog, everything that would fit. And we eloped at a courthouse, very crazy, crazy early years. And uh, unfortunately, in our first year of marriage, uh, we suffered a very tragic loss. So our best man and my husband's best friend was murdered. Uh, so he was murdered in a very senseless, horrible act of gun violence. Um, mm -hmm. And we ended up having to go through a murder trial, you know, 22 years old. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what any of that entailed, uh, you know, the kind of thing that we went through and what our life looked like for that, you know, year and a half period was honestly the kind of thing you see on a movie, you know, press that are swarming on your lawn and just a massive, massive um, just shift in the way that you view the world when you go through something like that. And so what happened was my husband and I, you know, obviously had this very, very acute, tragic grief to deal with um, in a very visceral way. Murder is unlike any other death because it is a death caused by somebody else. Um, that person was, you know, put into jail and we had to do the murder trial. And as we were going through um, that pain and suffering, we decided to read a lot more and more about, you know, Buddhist readings, you know, how others um, deal with it, reading lots of books on coping with violence and, and grief and things like that. We're not religious people at all. So this is the first time we'd even looked into things like this. And we discovered pretty quickly that the only way through it was through compassion. Uh, so we decided to go forgive the murderer, you know, go to the prison um, and forgive him for what he did. What was that like? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. It's it's for yourself, not for mm -hmm. them. I think if you you kind of expect it to be more like a movie where, you know, you forgive them and then they, you know, open up and you have this moment where you both kind of like feel this catharsis, but unfortunately for us that didn't happen and and that really often doesn't happen. You let yourself open and and they don't really give back. Um our what ended up happening in our case is, you know, he he claimed that it was self-defense and that, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. And um, mm. so he actually ended up, you know, not really receiving that uh, that forgiveness in the way that we expected. But we felt good that we gave it. You know, it was very, very freeing for us um, to this day. It was eight years ago. We're still the only people in the murder trial that actually did go forgive him. Uh, nobody else in the family or, or any other close loved ones did. Um, and I think that we're very 
fortunate that we went through that experience because in that compassion, that's where I discovered, wow, I am not acting with compassion in my daily life at all. You know, I have gone through this transformative life experience that has completely shifted, you know, who I want to be, what I think uh, my impact on the world is. And I've also become very acutely aware of, of pain and suffering. And I'm a complete hypocrite now. Like, look what I'm doing three times a day. Mm-hmm. How on earth can I continue to do that? And so that was the impetus for um, why why I went vegan. Um, we actually both went vegan uh, for ethical reasons, and we've never looked back ever since. And and remind me, that was roughly it. How old were you when that happened? I was 22. Yeah. And how old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? So I just turned 32. Okay. Wow. So you're still a very spring uh, piece of kale. <laughs> yeah, it happened very early in my life. And, you know, I, I tell this story very freely and openly. Uh, I talk about this on podcasts all the time. I write about this all the time because these types of tragic life-changing moments, you know, they don't have to break you. Mm-hmm. They can make you, you know, I, I think that um, the best way to describe it is it was the best worst thing that ever happened uh, to my husband and I, because it radically changed who we were as people. Uh, I can tell you, you know, when I was that young, I was not thinking about my impact on the world. I didn't think about what I ate. I didn't think about anything except for really myself. I had a very self-centered view of life. And when something like that happens, you suddenly realize, you know, there's a whole big world out there and there's a lot of stuff going on out there that you really can't control. But the ones that you can control, the personal decisions you do make, they matter. They matter a lot. Um, So to me, it's like, there's no other way to live your life at this point. I can't even believe that I, I acted differently before. Yeah. And so at, at what point in your life did you go to Silicon Valley and uh, get kind of ensconced in the, the, the tech world there? So a few years after, um, basically, you know, we went through the murder trial and uh, unfortunately, my husband's other best friend passed in completely unrelated circumstances. So we, we had, it was like tragedy after tragedy, like Shakespearean level, what happened to us. And so when that, when that second, um, passing happened, we went, that's it. We got to like flip the script and completely change our lives. And so we decided to pack up and we moved West. Um, it was the only thing we could think to do. Uh, we were in Florida at the time before. So we decided that's it. We've always dreamed of going to California. We've always dreamed of working in the tech industry. My husband already was in the tech industry. So we just picked up and left and moved to, we moved to San Francisco before we'd even been to San Francisco. We just heard it was the place to go and we wanted a fresh start. So that's what we did. And it's so funny. It's the second time I've, I've done that in my life. I packed and left Canada, moved to America, didn't know anybody except for my husband, didn't have anything, started over, built an entire new life. That life didn't work out. So we decided to start over again. You just keep leaping and the net, you know, for, uh, creates itself on the way down. <laughs> It does. Yeah. How else? I mean, what are you going to do if, if you're sitting in a situation and you don't like the way that it's going, you can either accept it or you can change it. Yeah. Every single decision in your life. I'm sure you've had this conversation with tons of people on the podcast. There are only two. There's two choices in every decision. Accept it or change it. That's it. Yeah. OK, so you. You're in the Silicon Valley, you're you're realizing uh, you have some observations, like most of these, these companies are run by, by white men, right? Yep. And, and, and at some point when your, your gaze goes to food and food tech, you realize that, wow, you know, food tech is going to go the same direction that tech in general has. And you decide that I think you want to be an influential force in making sure that there's a little bit more diversity. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I was very fortunate to, and still to this day, you know, still very strong relationships, really amazing people I worked with in Silicon Valley. I've worked with all the top CEOs and investors in the space, and it was a great, great experience. But I've got to be honest, Rip, it is a very lonely experience when you're a woman. It's a Mm -hmm. very lonely experience when you're the youngest woman in the room, when you're when you just don't look like and sound like and come from the place that everybody else comes from. And it was very difficult the first few years, you know, making it as an executive in tech. Um, imposter syndrome was very real. 
there was very few women. Um, I also built my career in lobbying in Silicon Valley. So we take both tech and lobbying, which are two very male dominated spaces and overlap them together. And so, you know, as I saw in 2018 or so, people starting to pay attention to food tech, I thought, wow, okay, people are suddenly, you know, they're suddenly listening. It's not fringe anymore. People are actually investing in it. Um, I'm not the crazy vegan. People actually know what I'm talking about when I say impossible or beyond now. And this thing is going to turn out just like tech. And, and that's a great thing um, in many ways because we can bring that culture of innovation. We can we can bring so many positive attributes of the tech industry to this industry. But we also have the baggage of leadership being you know, mostly all white men, um, mostly all men in general. And so I thought, if we don't make a concerted effort to diversify and create a more equitable, you know, future leadership in this space, it's going to look the same. And we're going to miss out on tons and tons of incredible leaders and founders and CEOs that could be building the companies that will change the future food system. And, and that was your impetus then for writing the book? Yeah, that was my impetus for creating Vegan Women's Summit, for writing the book, for all of um, all the projects that I'm working on now. It's really focused on how do we open up this conversation about changing the food system? Because as you know, and you talk to guests all the time about this, food is one of the few things that affects all of us. Absolutely. Everybody is affected by food. We all eat. There's almost 8 billion people on this planet and we all eat. And we need to make sure as we make the decisions for what the future of this planet is going to eat, that it's inclusive of everyone or we're going to fail. We absolutely will fail. And in your opinion, what do female CEOs, founders of these food companies, what do they bring to the table? There's a lot that women bring to the table that's very unique. And so, I mean, first and foremost, women have historically always led in food. That's just, it's who we are. Women have been... Um, in the home, even before we could have businesses to sell food, we've been leading um, in this space. The very first vegetarian restaurant in all of North America was led by a woman back in the 1800s, long before women were even allowed to have businesses. So this is a space that we have always been a part of. And then at the same time, we also know that women leaders act differently. They lead differently. They build different types of companies. Um, an interesting stat that I like to share with folks that most people are very surprised to hear is that uh, when women have an exit uh, from their company versus when men have exits from their companies, women founders actually produce a 63% higher exit valuation than male founders. You know, women are more methodical. Um, they are, you know, more mission driven um, than male founders. And when it comes to the food space, this really, really matters because food is a long game. We need people that are in it for the long haul. These are not going to be software companies that you can, you know, create an app and sell it off in three or four years. We're talking about very long term infrastructure building companies that are not going to have those same um, yields in return. So you need to actually be in it for something more. And as I spoke to the 15 women in my book, it was so clear to me that each and every one of them cared about food beyond just the business aspect. They mm. cared because they felt a responsibility to the planet. Many of them were mothers, but half of them were mothers. They felt a responsibility to their children. They just feel different about what their impact is on the world overall than most of the male founders and the and CEOs that you would speak to. Yeah. So I read your book. You did a phenomenal job with it. Your, your writing, your storytelling. I, I loved it. I ate it up, literally ate it up. Like it was awesome. a, a kale bruschetta sandwich. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but would you mind if I just, if I lobballed you, some of the women that you talk about, would you mind yeah. kind of giving a short little synopsis on them and kind of the, the amazing work they're doing? Yeah, and absolutely. Gonna, great. And if you don't mind, I'll just start with Pinky Cole, who is the CEO of, uh, of Slutty Vegan. Pinky Cole. Okay. So Pinky is an old friend of mine. Uh, so we have, we've actually known each other's from before Slutty Vegan popped off. So Slutty Vegan, for folks that are not aware, is a Southern base. So it started in Atlanta, fast food chain that's all vegan. And what's so unique about what Pinky is doing is that 98% of her customers are not vegan. And about 98, 99% of her customers are black. Um, so Pinky is black. She's a Jamaican American. 
Uh, her dad went to prison the day that she was born, you know, really grew up in, um, I believe, Baltimore and was, you know, raised on a very different path than she ended up on. And she has been looking at how we can mainstream the plant-based space to make it accessible to the Black community. And she is absolutely one of the most phenomenal, um, impactful entrepreneurs in both the Black community for Black entrepreneurship, but in the plant-based community as a whole, because she is getting vegan burgers into mouths that would never, ever have seen the vegan space as a place for them. That's a pretty powerful stat that 98% of, of her customers, you said, are not vegan. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. All right. How about Lisa Feria, if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, which she is the CEO of, of Stray Dog Capital. And because of you and your book, I reached out to her because we're wanting to do another funding round uh, at Plant Strong Foods and had a great conversation with her. So thank you for that. Awesome. That's what I'm here for, right? So Lisa Ferrier, um, another old friend of mine, she is absolutely phenomenal. So she is a Puerto Rican American, well, Puerto, she's Puerto Rico is part of America, but she's um, actually a Cuban refugee that came through Puerto Rico that came to America. Um, so an amazing like immigrant story in her family. Uh, first, uh, one of the first Latina like VCs in the space, um, the biggest uh, VC when it comes to the plant-based and food tech space. Uh, she basically saw a meet your meat video uh, years ago when she was um, in her corporate career and discovered that what was going on in the food system was just absolutely abhorrent. And she like overnight, you know, is one of those types of vegans went, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this is going on in the world and I'm not doing something about it. So she started one of the very first venture capital firms. So those are firms that provide um, outside funding to startups that are looking to grow. Uh, early investor in Ethan himself, you know, very yeah. timely, you just mentioned him and was one of the pioneers in making the plant-based and food tech space a space for people to invest. You know, back in 2015, 2016, nobody was paying attention to this. Vegan was a fringe thing. This was not something that people invested in. Obviously, nowadays, you're hearing about all mainstream investors doing it, but she really was a change maker and a pioneer when it came to convincing investors that they can make money in this space and that it's the right thing to do. And, and maybe you said this, but they're only capitalizing and investing in plant-based startup companies. Yeah, they only do. So they do plant-based and they also do cultivated meats as well. So anything that is removing animals from the food system, they work on. And they've had dozens and dozens of investments, uh, some really, really great exits. Lots of them have sold. Lots of them have gone public. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's the long game. So, you know, VCs that are committed to this space, like they know that they're committing to companies that are not going to be able to exit quickly, like other types of industries. So the type of people that it requires to be an investor in this space, it's it's pretty remarkable. Um, these are people that care. They're in it for the mission and they know that they're making a difference. Yeah. How about Rihanna Lynn, uh, the CEO of Journey Foods? Rihanna is, uh, well, she's near you. Uh, she's in Austin. Texas. Uh, she's an absolutely phenomenal leader in this space that has done everything. Where do you start with Rihanna? I mean, she's an Obama alum. She was at Google Ventures. Her mentor is a former CEO of McDonald's himself. Okay. This is a woman that has one of the most decorated careers of anyone I know. She's like 35 years old. I don't even understand how she's packed that many careers in her lifetime. And she is looking to use AI to break down the inefficiencies in the food system so that we can create a more sustainable food system. And that's a pretty novel thing. Uh, we still largely have a very broken supply chain, uh, as we know. I mean, we're watching this with the war in Ukraine right now. Like, this is a big deal. And it's a large part of why, you know, people like Ethan, for instance, had trouble early on in the in the days of Beyond, remember when you couldn't find a Beyond Burger? Was it like back in 18 or so? You couldn't find a Beyond Burger for like six months because of the pea protein shortage. Yeah. You know, these these are the less sexy things to talk about in food, um, how things get from A to B, you know, how we can reduce that footprint, how we can get more plant proteins into um, the system. How do we, you know, how do we take plant proteins that are currently being grown to become animal feed and turn them into products for us to eat? You know, how do we make it more efficient? That's the dirty work that she is doing. And it's hard, hard work. Um, and uh, she is uh, she's an absolute, just like complete badass in the space when it comes to her leadership. I was just talking to her yesterday. She was at World Economic Forum. Wow. 
I love people that aren't afraid to jump in and do hard work, hard, important work. So bless Rihanna. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about, what about, um, Daniela Monet? <laughs> I love the, Rip. I love the ones you're choosing, by the way, because oh, everyone good. I speak to, every person I speak to picks somebody yes. else out of the book to ask me about. And I never know who it's going to be because everyone, ta- they connect to somebody different, right? There's always like something in your path or in your interest that's drawing you to these women. And it's the same with everyone I talk to. Uh, so Daniela is, I mean, just the, one of the kindest, most giving humans I've ever met in my life. So she's a Nickelodeon star. So, you know, former child actor that's grown up and and now she um, does a number of different things in the plant-based space. Uh, she co-founded Kinder Beauty Box, which is like the leading vegan beauty, uh, beauty subscription box. Um, hundreds of thousands of them go out every single month and they specifically are looking to remove um, any sort of cruelty to animals in the beauty and cosmetic space, which is still like a pretty big space uh, for companies to come into. We talk about vegan food all the time, but animals are used quite substantively in um, both animal testing uh, as well as even in the products for makeup. Um, So she worked on creating that with Ivana Lynch um, and uh, and Andrew uh, from PETA, actually. So Andrew left PETA. Ivana is, uh, as everyone probably knows, Luna Lovegood from Harry Potter. And the three of them said, (laughs) we're all vegans. And we want to start creating consumer options to make it easier to make vegan choices. There's lots of brands that are doing it in food. What can we do? And beauty was a huge part of that. Uh, So they are creating really like the forefront of vegan beauty. In addition to that, she funds all kinds of different plant-based companies. She's a very active investor in the space. And really just like a great example of if you have a platform, regardless of how you got that platform, maybe you were an actor. Maybe, you know, you were on reality TV. I know lots of, you know, former reality TV stars that now do the plant-based space. If you've got people that follow you, you can make a difference. Yeah. And and you absolutely should. If you have a platform, you should speak on it. And what she has done with hers is just absolutely remarkable. You are doing such a great job uh, synthesizing down each one of these people. I, I want to ask you about three more. If Are you, okay. are you good with that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Three, let's do it. Three, I mean, three, three more. Then we're going to move on to uh, to, to v, VWS and and some other fun things. So uh, I'm probably not pronouncing her name right. Liran Nimradi. I was CEO. with Liran yesterday. Oh yeah. The CEO of Zero Egg. Liran. Uh, so I, I don't even know where to start with Liran. This is just like a crazy, crazy story. So her story is about how she took her uh, background in military leadership and has bringing it to the food system. So Liran is from Israel. Uh, I was with her this week at a, at a food tech conference, actually. And her focus is specifically on how she could create one of the most impactful products she could in the plant-based space. You know, so she you know, has been um, vegan, vegetarian a very, very long time personally, um, building up a career in the food and beverage space. Before that, she was a base commander at the age of 19. I think she led 12 different soldiers, female base commander. And she's really like applied this military structure and approach to how she's building her company. So her company, Zero Eggs, specifically does plant-based eggs. Okay, that's it. They do plant-based eggs. Sounds simple, right? Here's the thing. We only have really like one plant-based egg company, Just, uh, which, you know, the Just Egg is a remarkable product, has like 99% of the market share. Mm. And we are just like, we don't even, I think we have 1% of mark, market um, penetration in households in America when it comes to vegan eggs, right? So 40% of homes will buy vegan milk, usually almond milk, yeah. but it's like only 1% are buying eggs um, or potentially 2%. It's extremely low. So we need more and more brands out there. So she laser focused on what is the space that needs the most attention right now. And that's why she created Zero Egg. And the way that she is building out her US arm um, out of Tel Aviv and and now uh, launching over here is very interesting because it really does show a lot of her background in like efficiency and being a commander in the military, that was one of the things that we really touch on in the book. And as well with Israel, they are, you know, it's a desert. Um, they don't have the ability to grow their food. They know for a fact that they need to invest in future food technologies. So we're actually seeing a tremendous amount of CEOs coming out of Israel in particular in the plant-based um, and cultivated meat space right now. There's probably 
close to three dozen companies, maybe more. And it's a country of 9 million people. Mm, mm. Yeah. So relatively small. Um, Tiny. Yeah. The size of Los Angeles. I was New York is 8 million people. <laughs> yeah. 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 Tell me this. I know you've written several different articles for Rolling Stone. And in one of them, and I can't remember which one, because I know that you, you know, you wrote one, which is what will the future of plant-based meats look like? You writ, wrote one about just plant-based innovation that's going on right now. And then your third was, you know, why I think the future of food will be led by women. And one of those, you talked about how you thought that one of the most exciting innovations in the place for growth would be the uh, kind of plant-based egg category. Um, yeah. And is that because you feel like the market's so wide open, as you just said? And, but I, don't you feel the same way about plant-based like meats? I mean, comparatively, what, what do we have beyond an, an impossible? And I know you've, you list a lot in that article that are up and coming that I'd love to talk about, but um, was it seafood? I think you said you were so excited about, and then eggs, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, infant and toddler space too. Yeah. That's the third one that I said. And that's an yeah. appropriate one these days, right? Yeah. I wrote that article before the shortage happened, wrote the chapter on it, you know, last year before the shortage happened, talking about how this was going to happen. Go figure, right? Yeah. So I think that eggs is a really important space because eggs are, you know, if we're looking at changing the chicken, um, you know, farming industry, eggs are part of it, right? There is, there's the egg farming and chicken farming are one and the same. These are interlinked industries. You know, I know that a lot of people think that, you know, chickens that produce eggs don't become chicken and vice versa and all that, but that's just like not true. And so if we are going to start um, trying to dismantle the mm. chicken that we eat in this country, we need to also be looking at eggs as well. Um, chicken is the number one protein we eat in America. We talk about burgers all the time. And I agree with you, plant-based meats, still a huge, huge opportunity. But the, the reality is that we don't eat burgers that often. It's like less than 20%. Um, but what we do eat all the time, do you know what the number one selling protein in America is? Um, when you say protein, like animal protein? Yeah. Number one uh, selling meat in America. I'm going to say <laughs> steak. Tyson nuggets, uh, Tyson chicken nuggets. Yeah, I, I have no idea. Wow. Yeah. That is the number one selling meat in America, Tyson nuggets. If you look at the top five um, highest selling meats in this country, Oscar Mayer wiener hot dogs, Johnsonville brats, like we eat a lot of processed crap. Wow. <laughs> we really do, right? Um, and when it comes to like processed meats and things like that, I mean, what do you think? Broil or, you know, broiler chickens become like, you know, chicken breasts and things like that, but we use egg laying hens for all of that. So it is all interlinked. So we can't simply just be looking at the meat. It's like, you know, just looking at the cow, but then not also looking at the dairy. And I mean, I think uh, the average, the uh, average amount of um, products that come out of a cow are like over 200, right? Beef mm. tallow, all the fats, all the gelatins, things like that. Here's a fun fact for you. You talked about Canada being progressive earlier. Do you know that there's beef tallow in the money, the actual literal money next time you hold a Canadian bill um, when you're up, up north? There's actual animals that are used in currency. So we use animals in a lot of ways. So we need to think really um, big when we talk about like what the implications of disrupting even one piece of the animal ag system looks like. Wow. You know, couldn't agree with you more. And for example, you uh, also talk about one of the areas that's ripe for innovation is pet food. And I learned recently that like 30% of the meats that, that's produced in this country goes to feed our pets. And, and a lot of people like you and me that are vegans actually feed our, our dogs some sort of dog food that has meat in it, when the reality is they would do much better off without the meat and just a nice plant-based dog food. So uh, do you agree with all that? My dogs have been vegan for eight years. Yee-hee, good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so funny, Rip. You want to hear a real like mind, you know, trip there. My dogs went vegan um, before I did. Um, actually, it's probably nine years now because I learned about what they put in dog food yeah. uh, back when, if you remember, you remember we kept getting those like Chinese recalls, maybe like five, 10 years ago, like all the time with dog food and pet food. And so I, I looked into it and I was like, wow, oh my God, the, the meat that they use for pet food is so poor quality, better change my dog's diet. 
And then it wasn't me until a year later. I was like, wait, duh, like I'm doing it too. Why am I doing it? Um, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny how that works. But um, if the, if, if America's dogs and cats were a country, they would be one of like the top five biggest meat eating countries in the world. Exactly. And, but you know, here's the other thing that, you know, talking about that whole animal ag system and how it's all interwoven, the types of meats that they use for, for dog food, for instance, like a lot of those are like those egg laying hens that they then grind up later because it's poor meat quality. It does go into dog food again. Right. So like, it's all really interwoven in how we use meat in this system. Um, but there is a ton of studies that are now showing that vegan diets are just as healthy, potentially healthier for dogs. Uh, so my, my dogs have been great, um, for all of these years. I use wild earth. Um, my friend Ryan Bethencourt, he's the founder of it. Mark Cuban's one of his biggest investors and, uh, it's a 31% protein content, which is great because I have a diabetic dog, uh, and diabetic dogs usually need a special diet. They need at least 30% protein and his product turns out as a vegan product meets those, those, um, dietary requirements, which is really cool. Yeah. No, we actually, um, my second year of the podcast, Wild Earth was one of our sponsors. And oh, so I've, I've, been, I've, I've been feeding uh, our, our dogs Wild Earth ever since and actually had the veterinarian who was the inventor of Wild Earth on the, on the podcast. Oh, Ernie. Yeah, Ernie, exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's, I think the, the bigger point to the discussion is really we use animals in everything. We do. I'm getting my very first vegan car next month. Like I, you know, I didn't even have a vegan car. We use what, what kind of car is it? Oh, you're gonna like this. <laughs> I got the brand new electric vegan Mustang. Uh, nice. Yeah. Nice. You know what? Racing orange. I don't know if Tesla makes a, a vegan Tesla, but I found out this morning a friend of mine had a a flat tire in the parking lot of the swimming pool, and so. I was like, okay, well, let's fix this together. We could not find the spare tire. We found out they don't have a spare tire. In a Tesla? Yeah, like in the, there's, in the to, trunk, there isn't one? There was, there's no, no, there was no, ah. no. And we actually, so we called Tesla and they're like, yeah, it doesn't have a spare. And so we sent the uh, the the Tesla, you know, uh, AAA service to come in and, and change it out. But little yeah. tidbit for Tesla drivers. I did not realize that. So it's so funny. I. I never th saw myself as a Tesla driver. All my yeah. friends have Teslas. It just is never for me. And, you know, and I, I, I think this year there's like over 20 different car manufacturers are launching EVs. Um, the Mustang just launched last year. And it was just, it's just so interesting to see because it was like, we spent the last like nearly 10 years of like just Tesla, just Tesla, just Tesla. Yeah. And it was very slow, very, very, very slow. And then once the demand was there, all of a sudden you saw an announcement from the big five car manufacturers. Every single one of them is going fully electric in the next like 15 years. Yeah. Right. And I saved that. I saved that headline in December when it came out and I looked at it and I said, that is going to be our industry. That's what's going to happen. They're yeah. letting us slowly but surely create the demand, create the infrastructure. And then, you know, in a few years time, hopefully sooner rather than later, you're going to see an announcement that the big four meat companies in this country are going to go all cultivated or all plant-based, right? But they want to make us work for it. That's the thing. Like we need to build that demand ourselves to justify the industry before the big guys see it as, as worthwhile and investing, just like Tesla had to do. Yep. No, that's a great example. And with, with, uh, you know, price of gas now, uh, going over $5 a gallon, I mean, it can't happen fast enough. Same thing with plants. So when do you think it'll be that let's just say we have 50% or more of this country eating predominantly plants? So I think that the answer, the answer to this question is a little bit tricky because I think that we're going to see people eating a hybrid diet that we largely need. We need to move people away from eating industrial farmed animal meat. Right. And right. there's many levers we can use to do that. One can be plant based products. The other can be um, precision fermentation products. Right. So those are products that are creating, um, you know, bioidentical proteins without the use of an animal. And then, of course, the third one is the cultivated meats or for folks that aren't familiar, lab grown meat, quote unquote. And that is where I think we can move people. We can move people towards a diet that is a compilation of all of those pieces together that hopefully 
makes meat consumption the minority. I think that we are, um, I think we're naive to ever believe the entire world will go vegan. I think we're naive also to believe that the majority of Americans will just shift to an only plant-based diet. Um, I think if we can get Americans to be eating um, meats that are a hybrid of, you know, mostly pea proteins, mostly plant-based, um, maybe we stick a little bit of um, cultivated fat in there, you know, a couple percent just to make it taste a little bit meatier, but they're eating mostly a plant-based item. Yeah. That's where we win. Uh, and I think that you're going to see stuff um, starting next year, actually, uh, they're going to start regulating the uh, ability for us to sell cultivated products. And I think over these next five years, you're going to see a completely new category of foods that take it to the next level. You know, the way that impossible kind of elevated plant-based meats from those that came before it, from like the tofurkeys and corns, you're going to see this next big step up. And that's when I think we go more mainstream. Yeah, no, that was really well put. And I think with the cell-based meats, Mm-hmm. Once that really starts to scale and the pricing model there becomes, makes a lot of sense. I read an article probably two years ago that was just like, you know, it it, it will effectively put an end to our current animal agriculture system because it's so absolutely ineffective. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Are, are you kidding me? I mean, you can see probably in the reflection, I'm sitting here in Los Angeles right now. Um, there's a lot of a lot of browning that's happening in the hills I'm looking at right now because we're in another ward, water shortage, right? Mm-hmm. We're in another drought. Um, I've got a water notice on my house right now. We're down to a third of our water supply in the state of California. And do you know where our water's going? You know, 80% of the water in the state of California goes to agriculture. That produces 2% of our GDP. So it not only goes to animal agriculture, one of the biggest factory farms in America is less than an hour outside of Los Angeles. That's a fun fact for you. Most people don't realize that that even is taking place here. But in addition to that, what is using all of our water in this state? The most water intensive crop. Do you know what the most water intensive crop is in California? You want to uh, guess? Don't, 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 don't tell me it's almonds. It's not. But they act, they put that in the news to make you think that, didn't they? Yeah, they That's sure a great did. example. Yeah, that's misinformation. That is not the most water-intensive crop. The most water-intensive crop in California is alfalfa. Uh Rip, when's the last time you ate alfalfa? Uh, (laughs) I can't remember. Because we don't eat it. 80% of that alfalfa is going to feed cows and pigs. We are currently using our water in California to go grow alfalfa that is then taken and it is put on ships and sent to China to feed China's pork. That is how we are using so, our water in the state of California right now. Isn't, yeah. That, it's not that, even, it doesn't even go to animal agriculture here. Right. It largely actually is being sold to other countries, typically China. It's absolutely insane. You want to and talk about inefficiency? And, and, and who's, and who is the, like what company is, is growing this alfalfa that's using 80% of the water that's sending it over to China for pork? Do you know? Tons and tons of, co- I tons mean, there's companies? Okay. tons, you know, when you get into it. Um, yeah. It's just when you start to unpeel the layers yeah. of how we are making food in this country, it makes no sense. You don't even, you know, you don't have to even think about animals, right? I think from an ethical standpoint, we shouldn't kill, right? Let's remove that from the conversation altogether. Let's have a brass tacks conversation about how we use our limited resources in this country of 330 million people. Let's talk about how we use our land. Let's talk about how we use our water because the water is not going to get any better. The climate crisis is not going to get any better. You know, I saw um, I saw a meme the other day that said, instead of, you know, thinking about how this is the hottest summer you've ever had, think about this is the coolest summer you'll ever have for the rest of your life. Just think about that for a second. Yeah. You mentioned the alfalfa that's going to China for the pork. Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me what just happened here in uh, I think it was in California with Smithfield foods. Yeah. So Smithfield's has decided to close down um, their only pork processing plant that's um, here in Southern California and so Smithfield, for folks that aren't aware, it's the, the biggest meat company in the world, the biggest pork producer in America, uh, Smithfield Hams, and um, they produce a ton of different brands that you probably see at the store. Uh, fun fact for you, Smithfield's not even an American company. 
Smithfields is also owned by China. Um, Smithfields was sold to China uh, about five years ago or so because China has an insatiable need for pork. Um, Pork is the number one consumed protein in in China right now. They have astronomical pork farming. And so that's why they built uh, that's why they bought Smithfield. The reason they closed it here is because, um, A, I mean, California is expensive to operate and sure, but that's you know, that's a distraction that the real reason that they closed it is because we raised the uh, farming standards in the state of California several years ago uh, with a measure that was called um, Prop 12. Are you familiar with this, Rip? Well, I am only because I've I've seen it with on your Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Prop 12 uh, was a measure that was passed overwhelmingly by voters um, and it was passed to basically create more humane animal farming standards. So basically saying that we can't use gestation crates uh, that would force uh, mother pigs to be constantly kept on their side uh, while they're um, either pregnant or feeding their piglets. Um, They basically can't stand up. In addition to that, uh, there's also battery cages for hens and just various like extremely cruel things um, that we currently do uh, to keep animals in confinement so that we can intensively farm them. The state of California said, no, we don't want that here. And we also don't want to consume that either. So when the bill was passed, it not only changed the way that you had to farm in the state of California, but it also changed the way um, that you have to farm if you sell in the state of California, which is 40% of consumers in the United States. So Smithfield did not want to comply with that. And that is why they have said that they are going to close their processing plant. I have very unfortunate news to tell you, though, Rip, um, that Mm -hmm. is facing a Supreme Court challenge. It's expected to come down potentially in the next week or two. We will um, we'll see if they uphold it. But really, at the end of the day, it's very clear and transparent that animal ag producers know that consumers want meat to be made better or they want to eat less meat. Um, by far and large, consumers do agree with getting rid of factory farming. Even though most consumers consume factory farm products, polling shows that like 70, 80 percent of people oppose it. Yeah. We need to and we need to run with that. Right. We know that their their hearts are in that place. So how do we get their mouths in that place? Yes, totally. We got about six minutes and I'm going to try and get the most kale out of you that I can in this next six minutes. Okay, so let's try and do a little rapid fire here. Tell me all about Vegan Women Summit when you launched it, what it's all about and when is the next one if anybody wants to partake? So Vegan Women's Summit is a global media and events organization that is focused on empowering more women to get into this space. So we do the future of food, fashion, beauty, and biotechnology. So all things animal-free innovation. We started as one single conference in San Francisco two years ago in a room of 250 women. We have since grown to become a global platform of 45,000 women professionals across six continents. Um, as well as male allies, Um, we are focused on getting more people interested in this space, um, either as founders. We do the only pitch competition in the space that's focused on women. I've had over a 1,000 women apply from 31 countries since launching a year and a half ago. We also do job uh, networking. So we have the only job networking event series in the entire industry. So I work with uh, folks that Beyond or Impossible or Miyoko's, all of the top brands in the world to get them talent professionals. We helped over 2,000 job seekers last year. And of course, we do our big flagship summit. That's our big in-person conference, the Vegan Women's Summit. We just did it in April in Los Angeles. It was insane. I mean, we had over 800 people flew in from all across the world. We do CEOs, celebrities, activists, um, athletes, investors. It is all women that are focused on this space. We had Alicia Silverstone, tons and tons of people came from all over. Uh, We will be doing it again next year, but the Vegan Women's Summit will be moving to a new location for next year. We're gonna double the size. We're going to a three-day summit, um, bigger and better than ever. And uh, it'll be in a very exciting major city that you'll hear about, and it'll be next May. So um, you can see veganwomensummit.com slash newsletter. If you sign up, you can get updates to find out when we release tickets. Wow. Tell me this. You got a golden ticket for 11 Madison Avenue. (laughs) What was that experience like? It was 10 courses and five hours, Rip. Five hour (laughs) meal. I didn't even think I could eat for five hours, but I can. (laughs) 
if it's tiny amounts, it turns out I can eat a lot. Yeah. Um, I saw the, amazing. I saw the video. It did look like a lot of those little uh, servings were, you know, very proofy. <laughs> very, very proofy. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was a good experience. I've been really fortunate to kind of bring together a lot of people in this space that all are advocates in the space that aren't necessarily talking to one another all the time. That's a big part of why I created a media platform so that I could get investors to know what influencers are up to, to know what restaurant tours are doing, to know what celebrities and actors are interested in. How do we get everyone in one big space so that we can make a much bigger difference much faster? Wow. And you also uh, helped uh, Eric Adams. You uh, you did an event for him a couple months ago out in L.A. And uh, it's That's incredible what, what Eric has been able to do from, you know, Brooklyn Borough president to now becoming the New York City mayor. And of course, he, as uh, you and I both know, is um, is plant plant strong himself. He is. Eric is an amazing example of how to break down the barriers to the vegan space, right? I mean, he's a middle-aged cop, a black man, you know, like he is like, he does not take, he's, he carries like a gun. Like this is not the type of person that would, you'd ever think of as like a stereotypical vegan. Um, and that is exactly the kinds of people we need to be outwardly publicly talking about this space. We need people that look different, sound different, think different, all talking about how vegan is the way. So um, we're going to be doing a lot um, with him uh, in coming in the next like coming year, as well as um, I've got a lot of members of European Parliament, ministers, um, MPs that we're working with all over the entire world um, that will be coming to Vegan Women's Summit. They couldn't come this year because of the border. Uh, there's there are people in very, very powerful places all around this world that want to get together and make a much, much bigger change. Wow. You are getting after it. This, it's doing so, it, man. You are. You really, you really are doing it. It is so, it is so fantastic to meet you. So you're, are you also a rescue diver? Is that right? I am. Yes. That is my um, other passion is uh, the, the ocean and all things animals, right? 70% of the world is underwater. That was why I decided to become a diver because I realized that I love traveling. I've been to like 50 countries, um, been to six continents. I dove six continents. I want to dive the seventh. You can dive Antarctica for one month of the year. Wow. And it's the best way. You know, folks, if you are interested in seeing the world, you're missing most of it. It's underwater. It's amazing. I just, I dove the Red Sea like a week and a half ago when I was in um, Israel. I had a couple of days to myself and we got to hang out and play with an octopus. <laughs> like an octopus came up and hung out with us underwater. Like it was like my octopus teacher. I, it was like, right, right. it was one of the most breathtaking experiences of my life. And it keeps you grounded and closer to like the earth and, and all of its creatures in a way that you don't always have, especially if you live in a city. Yeah. I, I really liked my octopus teacher. That was really, really yeah. great documentary. If anybody yeah. hasn't seen it, I highly recommend it. What about, can you tell me a little bit about your, um, your tattoos? Um, yeah. So, um, this one that, that most people always see, uh, yeah, this yeah. is my sleeve. It's actually dedicated to animals that have been made extinct by humans. So this is actually a dodo bird. Um, and I'm also putting the Northern white rhino, uh, if folks are familiar, that's the, the rhino that's basically, uh, went extinct a couple years ago. So the, the last male Northern white rhino Sudan, I actually went to Kenya five years ago and met him. Mm. Uh, and I wanted to, you know, leave a tribute to all of those animals as a reminder that, you know, they should be here today, but due to human actions, they are not. And we can still stop all of this if we want to. Mm. Jenny, you're a beautiful, beautiful person doing incredible work. It is an absolute pleasure to meet you and to have you on the podcast. And I really, I, I want to have you on again in about a year and get caught up with everything that you've done. But thank you for your time today your commitment to making the world better. And, uh, and, and I agree with you. The future of food is female. And uh, mm, we couldn't do it without these amazing women. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Rick. Hey, give me a little fist bump, please. Boom. Let's do it. <laughs> awesome. As Jennifer said in the interview, the Vegan Women's Summit is going to be bigger and better than ever in 2023, and she's not lying. The dates have recently been announced, and it's going to take place May 18th to the 20th, 2023, in none other than the Big Apple, New York City. 
ticket pre-sales start soon. So to learn more about the summit and all of Jennifer's work, hop in on their newsletter list at veganwomenssummit.com. And her book, The Future of Food is Female, is out now. And we'll make sure to put a clickable link in the show notes at plantstrongpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, keep it plant strong. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.